If you'll join with me in the scripture reading, we will be reading 2 Samuel 14, verses 1 through 3. And I think it's 264 in the Red Pew Bibles. Now Joab, the son of Zuriah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. We are continuing on in our Second Samuel series. Uh, maybe some of you are familiar with uh, this narrative and others of you are not. It does not tend to be all that popular, so um, hopefully uh, we can all gather something from the scriptures this morning. Uh, to begin this message, uh, there's something that needs to be addressed from the last verse of chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14 because the Bible translations we have don't seem to come across the same way it does from the original Hebrew language that it's written in. So let's just take a look back into those scriptures before we move on. So first, looking at 2 Samuel 13, verse 39. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Now when we read that word longed in verse 39, we might get this impression of a father's heart longing for their child but looking at this Hebrew word, the word longed is more accurately translated as consumed or finished or ended or done. So the idea is more like the spirit of the king's desire to march against Absalom ended, that that was finished, that that was done, that he lost his need to go after Absalom. And then continuing on to chapter 14, verse 1. This makes more sense here. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And again, if you were to look at that, just looking at our English translation, you might think, oh, it's a father's heart going out to his son, went out to him. But if you look at the original Hebrew text, there's no verb there, went. That, that word is not there. And so the translation that would be truer to the text would be something like this, that the king's heart was against Absalom. And so this changes things, doesn't it? Because the way that you would see a father and his heart towards their child, like that's, that's not there. That, that's, that intent is not there. And so David was not longing for Absalom. The king's heart was against Absalom. And so you skip down to verse 24, and, and this would make more sense to us if this was the case. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Makes more sense, yes? Okay, so that's cleared up. Then we can move on. Let's move forward now. Absalom is brought back to Jerusalem. And David doesn't want Absalom in his presence there. And he doesn't want him around. And he's not longing for him. So when we go through all the way to chapter 18, it's not until then that David's heart changes. But in chapter 14, that's not the case. David's heart is not for Absalom. 
And so this is why Joab comes up with this plan to recruit this woman from Tekoa to get Absalom back to Jerusalem. And if David is the one who was longing after his own son to come back, wouldn't he have done that? Why, why does he need convincing? And so there's no reason for Joab to, to come up with this plan if David himself wanted his son back in, in his presence. Now, why is this story even here? We look to 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man, or more accurately, the messenger of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we look at 2 Samuel chapter 14 today, looking for those things that Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy. Now going into verse 2 of 2 Samuel 14, And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Now Tekoa is a very cool town, a few miles south of Jerusalem, still there, still people living in it and whatnot, a very ancient city. It's where the prophet Amos is from. You can go and go back to our archive and listen to that Amos series. But Amos shows up on the scene several hundred years later after 2 Samuel. But this is where Joab goes to recruit this woman from Tekoa, this wise woman. Continuing on with the story, go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, save me, O king. And the king said to her, what is your trouble? She answered, alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, O me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. The story is the widow had two sons. They get into fight. One kills the other one. Now, her whole clan is after that son that committed this murder. He has to pay with his life. But if this were to happen, that woman would lose everything because there's no heir. It does not go to her. It goes to her oldest son, surviving son. And so his name is wiped out because there's no continuation of property or assets or anything. And so Joab recruits this woman because it seems that whatever he has tried so far with David is not working. It has not worked. So he, he goes to find one of the subjects of the kingdom to plead their own case before the king. And it works. The king comes up with this favorable decision for her in verses 8 through 11. Invokes the Lord saying the Lord will do this. Basically saying I promise on the Lord's name that I will protect your son. But the woman doesn't stop there. You look at what she does in verses 12 through 14, and it's one of these statements that people like to throw in. And like, by the way, 
You know, like, you know, they have this initial ask and then they kind of sneak something in there like, oh yeah, I forgot to say something. To, I have some more to say. And so she sneaks in this thing that, you know, King, you've done something similar. So verses 12 through 14, then the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my Lord the King. He said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. Inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again, we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. By the way, David, you, you gave me this favorable ruling, but look at yourself. Look at what you did to your own son. And, and, and you promised that my son who committed this crime can stay and not be harmed by the clan. But you're not consistent. You're a hypocrite with your own judgments because that's not the way you've treated your own son. That he's been banished from the kingdom and you haven't done anything to bring him back. You, you've wronged all of us. You're not being a consistent king. Then the woman goes back to her own case again, verse 15. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king because the people have made me afraid and your servant thought I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The lord your God be with you. And so you see how she switches things around again, saying, oh, you hypocrite. Oh, but you're so awesome, right? Now, why does she do this? Because like most people, she's trying to make things a little softer, and a little bit more palatable, because she doesn't want David to think that the main reason why she came was pleading the case for Absalom before David, even though it really was. And people do this all the time when they approach you, right? They, they come and they have this small talk, and like, oh, how are your kids, how this, and whatever. And they oh, yeah, by the way, can I borrow this? Or can you do this for me? Like, it happens all the time at work or wherever it is, church. You know, people coming up to you, having this little small talk, and then... By the way, I have something else to ask for you when you could have just, like, asked me. So verses 12 through 14, that's the real reason that she talks to David. But now David knows what's going on. Verse 18, then the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my lord, the king, speak. The king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in my mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go bring back the young man Absalom. We're going to see if the king really has wisdom, and I think we already know he doesn't, because we kind of know how the story ends. And so, yes, Joab planned all of this. This woman is buttering up David, saying, you're so wise, and all this kind of stuff, and she pulls this off. And she's actually a pretty wise woman herself in how she kind of conducts all of this and navigates all of this, but it's devious, isn't it? It's not pure. And then she draws these parallels between her son's case and David's 
son's case, Absalom, that one of her sons kills his brother just as Absalom killed Amnon, that the clan banished this son and wants to kill him for this crime, and that here Absalom is banished and he's now this refugee in Geshur who, who can't come home to Jerusalem. And so she starts this reasoning with the king after securely providing safety for her own son, then she kind of uses that in parallel for Absalom to come back home and, and to provide safety for him in Jerusalem because that seems to be inconsistent with what she was just granted for her son in terms of this safety, while Absalom does not have any of this safety. He's living as a, a refugee over in Geshur. And so as we read all of this, it all seems pretty reasonable that what this woman is presenting is this is a reasonable request, this is a plausible request, but is it really all that convincing when we look at the two cases? Are they really parallel? And it seems plausible on the surface, but are these two stories really in parallel? And she has this very plausible case that if these cases are parallel, then yes, the ruling should be the same. But they're not the same. They're not the same. In the fight of her sons, what happened looks to be unintentional manslaughter. That they got in a fight, there's no one to like separate them, and, and one just kills the other one. There is no mention of like an intent or anything like that, but I'm assuming these are brothers, they love each other, they're not, they're not it's, it's accident. But in the case of David's son, Absalom's murder of Amnon, that's premeditated. That is planned. He planned on murdering Amnon two years prior to that even happening. That he deliberately did it. That that was first degree murder and this woman's son is not a case of first degree murder. This is first degree murder versus something more like involuntary manslaughter. And those are two very different cases in the court of law, aren't they? Even in our court of law, that's, those are very, two very different things. One is you can have capital punishment for first-degree murder, and involuntary manslaughter, you don't. That you, you don't get the same outcome. And so this calculated first-degree murder, that's a capital offense. And it's different from this involuntary manslaughter. And so David brought Absalom back, even though he committed first-degree murder. And perhaps there was more to the story than this woman is bringing up in this parallel story of her own sons. I don't know. We're only given what we're given. But maybe there's a loss of credibility even on David's part himself to be the judge because why? He's guilty of first degree murder also. He did that to Uriah, right? He's guilty of the same crime. So how could I, David, execute a capital punishment on Absalom, my own son, when I'm guilty of the same crime? I did the same thing. I killed Uriah, and it was premeditated. I planned it. Well, even though he might have lost credibility, he still has responsibility because he's the head magistrate of all of Israel. This is his responsibility to carry out justice. So even if you lose credibility, you still have to carry this out. But he doesn't. And so 
this wise woman who has this sort of devious plan is trying to draw parallels when they're not parallel. This is first-degree murder versus involuntary manslaughter. Those aren't parallel crimes. And so they, they look at it, but there's this huge difference in the story. They're different. Now, not only this, but there isn't this any recorded repentance from Absalom. He's not saying, like, sorry, I shouldn't have done it or anything like that. There's nothing of the sort, and yet he's brought back anyway. And so there's this really devious wisdom going on here in 2 Samuel 14, and it's a wisdom that isn't wise. It's not a wise wisdom. There's this perceived parallelism that if you just kind of read it on the surface, it'll just, you'll miss it. You'll just think like, oh yeah, that makes sense. This woman of Tekoa doesn't make sense. But then if you look deeper, they're not the same. First degree murder is very different from involuntary manslaughter. And then it's finally then that you realize they're not parallel. They're not the same. That this decision that David is making, it lacks discernment. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent. We need to be so careful about what other people portray as wisdom when it's not. And you and I are faced with this in the world all the time. When people are giving us this worldly wisdom and trying to make it sound parallel. And on the surface, if you don't think about it, it'll go over you. That you got to dig deeper into his word. And then you're going to be able to see, uh, no, that's comparing first-degree murder with involuntary manslaughter. Yes, they're both murder, but they're very different. And this is the discernment that we need, that it might appear one way on the surface, but when you look deeper, you see it more clearly, and you see how decisions lack discernment, even in the church. And as the world influences the church, how the church is losing discernment into all these kind of worldly inputs of wisdom that don't match up. There are things that happen in the church all the time. They have happened, they are happening, they will happen, and they appear a certain way. And people are exercising wisdom that frankly isn't very wise. They're making decisions that are not wise, that it lacks discernment. Again, what did Paul write? It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Your love with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent, the best. The son who committed manslaughter is welcomed back. And it is out of a mother's love. It is out of knowledge of the entire story. It is out of discernment. Yes, it was murder. It's involuntary manslaughter. It was an excellent decision. And Absalom's though, not so much. That's first degree murder. And you're accepting this guy back. And he's not even repentant or sorry for the whole thing. And so for us, there are all of these moral and ethical questions that we deal with all the time. There are these situations and circumstances that the church deals with all the time. And people are offended. 
all over the place. People are offended. And then so what do people start doing? They start referencing their own experiences. They start seeking out other types of counsel, wisdom, knowledge. And then they start trying to make these parallel arguments when they make these decisions. And so what we need to do is we need to look past this surface parallelism with wisdom, with discernment, and not make these unwise decisions and not be practicing an unwise wisdom. Not making decisions that lack discernment. I have to uh, credit our elders here because they've been through a lot in, uh, ever since the start of the church, really. But every, every season, our elders go through something for free. I mean, I, at least you guys pay me to be a pastor. They, they don't get paid for any of this. If I was Pope, I'd grant them sainthood. But it's so hard a task. And the decisions that they've made recently, they're very difficult decisions. Very difficult. It has been with many, many hours of prayer, many, many hours of counsel, whether it is legal counsel, whether it is pastoral counsel, whether it is just outside consultation. So many hours have been put into decisions And it's all based on this, to show love abound more and more with knowledge and discernment that approve what is excellent. We want the best. So elders, thank you. Thank you so much. And of course, no one is perfect, including those elders. But the thing is, I can tell you, I know their hearts. I know what their motives are. I know what their intentions are. I know that. I know their desires to love more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that they may approve what is excellent. I know that. I know the amount of prayer they've put into things. I know the amount of thought, the amount of counsel into the very tough decisions that they've made for our church. I know all of those things, and I am proud to serve under their leadership and shepherding, even though at times they seem so very unpopular. But it's right. It is a wisdom that is beyond these parallel stories. It is a discernment that is beyond the parallel stories. And what we all need to do is we need to plead with the Lord to be able to see through the surface those surface fallacies, those surface deviousness, the, the surface reasonable plausibleness of just the mere earthly wisdom. We need to go deeper than that. And that there's this wisdom that seems really reasonable. It seems plausible on the surface, but it's devious if you go underneath it. It's not having love abound more and more. It is divisive. It is not more knowledge. It is causing more confusion. It's the opposite of what Paul wrote to the Philippian church. It's not discerning. 
Verse 22, And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. So Joab successful. He did it. But this is one of the the most discouraging things as a Christian, isn't it? This is a very discouraging thing because this, the same thing in verses 28 through 33 when Absalom is successful in getting his way so that he sees the king again. These things are so frustrating that these people that commit these crimes or that they, they do these wrong things, they do these evil, bad things, but then they seem to win. Like, Joab... You killed Abner. What are you doing as the right hand of David? That was first degree murder also. And then here's Absalom, another first degree guy. It seems like all these first degree guys get all the blessings over here. You you get to come back as a prince. See, Absalom, he commits first degree murder against Abner. He flees to Geshur where his maternal grandfather is the king. So, so think about this. This guy's not living the fugitive life. His grandpa is king. And he's there, he's living it. He's got, he's got everything he wants. He's, he's prince. My grandfather's the king. I can eat whatever I want. I can go wherever I want in this kingdom. I can have whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. He's not suffering from imprisonment or homelessness or starvation or anything like that. He's had it made in Gesher. He loves it there. He's very well taken care of. Now back in Jerusalem also, he has this advocate in Joab. So not only is he living the life in Gesher back in Jerusalem, he has this guy, Joab, who's one of David's most trusted men. Why was Joab such an advocate for Absalom? We're not really sure. Maybe he really thought Amnon deserved what happened to him because of what Amnon did to Tamar. And so, yeah, that guy deserves it. Now, keep in mind who this guy is, though. This is the guy who killed Abner because Abner killed his brother Asahel. And Asahel was actually the, the aggressor. He was chasing after him. And Abner kept on saying, like, turn back, man. I don't want to fight you. I don't want to fight you. Leave. And, he, and Asahel kept chasing him. And he was like, come on. I don't want to fight you. Don't. And then it finally came to battle. And then he killed Asahel. Like, who's, whose fault is that really? And so maybe this sibling loyalty thing is very important to him. You know, I, I stood up for my brother Asahel. Um, Absalom stood up for her, his sister Tamar, so, you know, I, I'm in his court. I do it. But we really don't know. What we do know is Joab is very instrumental in bringing Absalom back to Jerusalem. And once Absalom is back in Jerusalem, he's not allowed to be in the king's presence, which then lends to why I kind of started in the, in the beginning, chapter 13, verse 39, chapter 14, verse 1, that the king wasn't longing for him. The king... His heart did not go out for him in that sense. That's why, otherwise, it would be kind of confusing. And so, him not being allowed in the presence of the king, it's mentioned three times that the king doesn't really want to see him, right? Verses 24, 28, 32. 
So Absalom is allowed to be in Jerusalem physically, and he seems to be doing well in Jerusalem, but he's not reconciled to David. And so Absalom is not happy with this, even though he's welcomed back, even though he's allowed to have his kids there, and he's allowed to get every blessing from being in the kingdom. And he's been away in Gesher for three years. So he's been living nice under Grandpa for three years, and then he's back in Jerusalem, and then by the time we get to this part of the story, he's in Jerusalem for two years. So for five years, he's not been reconciled with his dad, but he's been living fine. So he tries to reach out to Joab, but Joab is just ghosting him. Joab's like, I did my job. I, I, I got you back here in Jerusalem. Leave me alone now. Let me do my thing. And then he's like, no, I need to talk to you. And so he, he does something that friends don't do to each other. But let's read it. Verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. Oh, great, right? More success for this guy. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. No acne, I guess. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. So you can read, it's two to six pounds, and I wish I had that hair. Because I'm thinning. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servant, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. So there seems to be this reconciliation between David and Absalom after five years. And so keep in mind, this is five years after he had Amnon killed. And so this is not like a right away thing. This is, this is five years later. But still, this seems like a successful reunion, reconciliation. But to you and me, while we're reading this, at least to me, it doesn't feel great. It doesn't feel like he's not repenting for what he did. He just wanted to be back in the king's good graces. And this feels discouraging because it doesn't feel like any justice has been done. Yeah, five years has passed, but the guy committed first-degree murder. And during the five years, he lived like a prince in Gesher and in Jerusalem. It's like Martha Stewart's prison, right? Like, it's, what, what, what was that? Like, what, what was that? What did you do? Like, where's the justice? No, nothing has happened to Absalom. He was living a blessed life in three years in Gesher, and now he's living two years of a blessed life in Jerusalem. Everything's completely fine. And here's this wicked man who goes on living his life. And it's just so unjust that this hate-filled man, guilty of premeditated murder, is just very well networked to kings and to generals. 
and there are no consequences for his evil deeds. Doesn't that sound familiar? Isn't that our world? That if you know the right people and you have the right connections and everything like that, you can get away with murder, literally. There's no justice. And we're faced with the same things in our world. We're faced with wicked people who have great success that for you and I, we'd be in prison for all the stuff that they do. But they seem to be blessed from above. They're like richer than rich. They get away with whatever they want to get away with. They're free from the rulings of justice. And these people, they live long, healthy lives. And all the while, we know good people who are like diagnosed with cancer, who have really bad relationships with their loved ones, and, and they're not thriving. And these good people that we know, they lost loved ones. And these evil people, these bad people, they don't seem to be the people that are affected with like layoffs or drunk drivers or natural disasters or things that you're just wondering, like, that, that person is such a good person. Why did that happen to them? That no, these evil people seem to be getting ahead, that they seem to be moving up a corporate ladder and getting promoted or moving up more politically or doing better financially and they're purchasing more property around the world and more material things and all this kind of stuff and you're like, why? Why do they prosper when the good people we see around us suffer? This is what Psalm 73 is all about. It's uh, important for us to read Psalm 73 all the way through but I just want to highlight verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. You know, you think about this stuff and it is wearisome. You don't understand. Like, how do these evil, bad people get ahead in life? And we're good people and here we are. And it's not until we enter into the sanctuary of God that we're in God's presence that we know how things end. We know how the story ends. There is a success that the people of God see in other people who really don't deserve it and it is wearisome. It is disheartening. It is discouraging. Because you do good, you do what is right, you do what is honorable, and you do what is just. But it just seems you're getting the short end of the stick when others who are not honoring God seem to be just continually blessed. But just because it appears blessed in a way doesn't mean that it is so. Look back to verses 25 and 27. Absalom, gorgeous Absalom. He appears wonderful. He can be a model, Fabio-like hair, he's like handsome, he has all these children. Interesting that nothing is mentioned about his character. It's all surface. It's all how he looks and his hair and all what he has. But there's no mention of his own piety or his own faith or worship or humility or wisdom. There's no virtue that is mentioned. He's praised for these physical things. Sad thing is that's what people are impressed by. They look and like, oh, look at that guy. Adonis, look, look at him. 
But that is a very, very dangerous comparison to be made with. Because if you look at 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, who did this happen to? 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. Again, no virtue, no character, all physical. Physically able to do some things pretty awesomely, though. Fight and win wars. But totally inept at living a covenant life with God. A complete failure as a king. But then it's the physical that what people were looking at. Look at that guy. So tall. He's going to lead us into battle. We're going to win. Look at this guy. He's awesome. And then you get to 1 Samuel chapter 16, starting in verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. This is when Samuel goes out to, to look for the next king. He sees Eliab, David's oldest brother, and he's like, Ah, that, that must be the guy. Look at him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as the man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then we get to 2 Samuel chapter 14, verses 25 through 27, and this is said about Absalom. So he's not in good company. Saul, Eliab, Absalom. And if Samuel anointed Eliab, it would have just been like Saul 2.0. It would have been the same thing. And here's Absalom, and this is not a good way for us to be characterized. Yet how do we typically characterize success? We look on the outside. We still do this. We look at what people wear. We look at what people drive. We look at where people live. We look at what they do for a living. We look at all the material things that they have. It's usually physical appearances, how things appear in a person, in their family. And if, if their kids are neat and have well man good manners and go to good schools and all that kind of stuff, that's not us. When people look at us, what we need to do is we need to say, look at Jesus. Don't look at me. Look at Jesus. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. That when people look at you and me, they need to see Jesus in us, not the things that we have, not the things we wear, not the things that we possess. They need to see Jesus in us, and only Jesus. Everything else is just empty. How would you like to be described without any character or any virtue, that it's just kind of all surface? It's empty. And so when we read chapter 14, it looks like there's a resolution, that things are resolved, that David and Absalom, they're together again. But the thing is, is it really isn't, because if you read on, this is just the start of messy stuff between Absalom and David. But you read here, you read that last verse, and you're like, oh, they kissed and made up. But when King David kisses Absalom, he kisses a man who appears successful, but his heart has not changed. 
from that same guy that was planning the murder of his brother five years ago. It is still hate-filled. He has still not repented. And you will see all of this unfold in the next several chapters through chapter 18. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you look at the heart. And we see what we see in a physical sense with our physical eyes. And we look at the outward appearances, but Lord, you look at the heart. And we ask God for a heart change within ourselves. And so many times we, we try to make changes in our physical appearance and how we look. And so we do things to change outwardly. But help us, Lord, to have people, when they look at us, that they see you. I pray for our leadership. I pray for our deacons who have worked so hard as well and also volunteering their time. I pray for our elders. I pray for our ministry staff and all the people that serve at this church. I ask, God, that you would give us discernment that is below the surface of what seems to be parallel in front of us, but so much more going on that we don't want to exercise an unwise wisdom, but we, we definitely want to exercise a true wisdom that is from you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your communion elements with you, uh, let's take that out and take those together. If you don't, just hold up your hand and we can get those communion elements to you. The first element we'll take together is this wafer symbolizing the broken body of Christ for us. That this is true reconciliation that isn't just surface deep between that kiss between Absalom and David, but this one is a true one. Let's take this together in Jesus' name. And the fruit of the vine symbolizing the blood of Christ spilt for us to bring us that ultimate reconciliation with our holy God. We take this in remembrance of Jesus. Lord, thank you for this sacrament that we do weekly just as a reminder that you promised to come back for us. And so we await, Lord, for that day, for true justice to happen, for you to set right everything that is wrong. Because as we live this life, Lord, we just see injustice happening. We just see things that are not right. So we look forward to your return in Jesus' name. Amen.